I want to read today about um, Saul's conversion. So many of us think it happened on the road to Damascus when in reality it started there, but it really was uh, completed in Damascus. Just got back from Georgia, talked to my mother uh, Friday night. Her brother, who knows the Lord, has uh, over the past few years, in many respects, abandoned the gospel. Uh, He feels as though all he needs to do is focus on the Torah. discounts Jesus. And so my mother said to him, what about the New Testament? He said, oh, that's Paul. That's just Paul. You are a fool to believe that it's just Paul. Paul demonstrated the signature of Jesus. He was a servant of Jesus. What he spoke, what he wrote, what he did is what he saw and heard Jesus do. Don't ever be foolish enough to believe that some man or woman who Jesus is using is great. There's only one who's great. His name is Jesus. He is God, and our delight is in him. So let's look at two texts. First of all, we'll go in reverse order. Acts chapter 26, Paul is talking here years after the Damascus Road experience, and he's explaining it to a king by the name of Agrippa. And it's gripping what he says. In this connection... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared for you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to these things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from their darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then our text, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may again regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened The woman grew up in the 1940s in Louisiana. As a small child, every Saturday afternoon, her best friend would come over. Her best friend was the daughter of the woman who cleaned her mother's house. And they'd play dolls in the breezeway, and they'd make mud pies by the lake. They would eat cookies, and they'd build castles, and they'd play dress-up. And this went on for a number of years, and then one Saturday afternoon, she didn't show. The next week, she didn't show. Now, she knew her playmate wasn't sick. She knew that she hadn't moved away. I mean, after all, her mother continued to come and clean their house. She wondered where she could be. And on the third week, she said to her dad, why doesn't she come to see me anymore? She said, I'll never forget what my father said to me. It's no longer appropriate. Somebody has said, the eyes of a child don't squint to read labels. A child doesn't see a label that says black or white. Catholic or Protestant, Asian or Latin, gay or straight, capitalist or socialist. Labels create impressions. This person is wealthy. That one's on welfare. This person is brilliant. That one's a dunce. This one is beautiful. That one is dowdy. Impressions form images. And images give way to fixed ideas. And fixed ideas always give way to prejudice. Did you hear about the man who went to the Catholic priest and asked if he'd say a mass for his dog? He said, Father, would you say a mass for my dog? And the father said, are you kidding me? We don't say masses for dogs. He said, but my dog was like one of my children. My dog, I love my dog. Won't you say a mass for my dog? Priest said, we don't say masses for dogs. You may go down the street to another denomination that might do that, but not us. So as the man's walking away, says to the priest, I'm really sorry about that because I was going to give a million dollars for the mass. The priest said, wait a minute, you didn't tell me your dog was Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) 
Have you ever thought about the conversion of Saul in terms of prejudice? Years ago, Lloyd Ogilvie of Hollywood Presbyterian Church wrote a commentary on the book of Luke and Acts. And in it, he says this, Next to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, there is no more important event in human history than the conversion of Saul. Without the conversion of Saul, the church would have remained a little sect of Judaism. Without the conversion of Saul, the church would never have grown into a worldwide movement. Without the conversion of Saul, most of the church's theology would never have been penned. Without the conversion of Saul, the destiny of the church would never have been realized. Without the conversion of Saul... All of us would still be lost in our sin. And yet, as I've already mentioned, behind the conversion of Saul is one singular power, the power of a sovereign Christ. You know where you see all that power in all of its splendor? Not so much on the road to Damascus, but in the city of Damascus. For here in the city of Damascus is where the sin of prejudice is defeated. How? By the signature of Jesus. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the distress. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now think about who he is. He's a Roman citizen. He is from the hometown that houses one of the three great universities in antiquity, Tarsus. He's a man who studied with the greatest mind, Hebrew mind and intellect in his time. He's a Pharisee. He's a keeper of the law. He's so well respected by the Sanhedrin that they commission him to exterminate the church. And so he begins his extermination with Stephen, chapter 7. Two weeks ago we looked at Stephen. There's only one other man in the whole Bible described like Stephen, full of grace, and that's Jesus Jesus is full of grace. Stephen is full of grace. What does Saul do? He murders Stephen. And yet, weeks later, as he's traveling to Damascus, Saul has his exclamation points turning into question marks. His teacher, Gamaliel, has gone to the Sanhedrin and he's, he's advised them to slow down on the persecution of the church. Why? Because instead of weakening the church, the persecution seems to be strengthening it. When Stephen dies, the church doesn't die, it begins to explode. Disciples like Ananias begin to travel six days away to the town of Damascus, and there they start a church. Paul, Saul is in distress. 
All of his fixed ideas are beginning to change. And so he heads to Damascus. Second, notice his discovery. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now years later, he'll stand before the ruler of Judea, Agrippa, and he will tell him a a more lengthy account of what's happened. He says there that the light that he sees from heaven is brighter than the noonday sun. Now, can you think of any other light in Scripture that is characterized as brighter than the sun? There's only one. And that light that's described in Scripture as brighter than the noonday sun is the Shekinah glory of God. The word Shekinah in in Hebrew literally means the one who dwells. And so the glory of God, the Bible says, comes upon the Holy of Holies, there on the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of God comes down and hovers right over the mercy seat. In other words, the very presence of God is in the Holy of Holies, right over the mercy seat. God's in their midst. And here, what Saul is saying is, on the road to Damascus, that same light came. Brighter than the noonday sun. Meaning what? Jesus' presence was all around me. He invaded my space. The glory of God was there. Now, I want you to remember something. Remember two weeks ago when we talked about Stephen? Luke tells us twice that Luke, Luke says that Stephen says, I look into heaven and there I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Twice Luke tells us that in the space of three verses. He sees, Stephen does, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And you say to yourself, that doesn't make sense to me. Because when he ascended into heaven, the Bible says he sat down on the right hand of God. So why is he standing? You got it? If Jesus ascends and he's sitting on the throne, what's he doing standing up? Everyone in antiquity would know what that meant. It means that when Jesus sees Stephen being stoned, he stands up and he's ready to come to his defense. He's ready to go. And yet, remember, he doesn't leave that spot. He simply watches in fixed, rapt attention. Stephen, his servant, being executed. He doesn't leave his throne. He doesn't even speak a word. But here, on the road to Damascus... He leaves his throne. A light shines from heaven. The Shekinah glory, the very presence of God, surrounds Saul. Not only does he come to him, he speaks to him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now notice, he doesn't say, why do you persecute Stephen? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting these men and women? 
my disciples. He says, why are you persecuting me? You see, to Jesus, it's personal. Jesus knows that everything his disciples do and everything that they say in his name is simply bearing the signature of Jesus. They may think they're speaking on their own, but he knows better. He's speaking through them. All of the justice they do, all of the loving kindness flows from a heart that he's changed. All of their words, all of their actions come from him. But notice, that's not all Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He tells us in chapter 26 that Jesus adds this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. In antiquity, a farmer with cattle or with sheep would get a long pole, and on the end of that pole, they'd file it down to a sharp point, and on that sharp point, they'd put a piece of metal that was just as sharp. Whenever a sheep or a cow or an ox would get out of line, they would goad the animal back into line. Do you see what Jesus is saying to him? It is hard for you to kick against my goad. It's hard for you. I mean, think of what Jesus is saying there. Why do you persecute me? And then his concern is Saul. It's hard for you, Saul, to kick against the goad. He doesn't say it's hard for me that you're kicking. It's hard for you. You see, Jesus is absolutely sovereign. And yet in his sovereignty, he is incredibly compassionate. He's saying, Saul, it is so hard for you. I feel your pain. I've got a path for you to walk in. I've got a plan for your life. You've studied the law. You've heard of my ministry. You've seen my grace in Stephen but you've set yourself against me. And I know how painful that is. I know how tough that is on your conscience. But I'm here to take your pain away. Third, notice the deliverance. Look at verse 6. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Now let me ask you a question. Why doesn't Jesus just do the whole conversion right on the spot? Why does he simply say, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Get up, go into the city. He has to be led there because he can't see. Why doesn't Jesus just go, bam, and he goes from Saul to Paul? He could have done it. Why doesn't he release him from all of his blindness? Because Jesus wants to do more than that. He not only wants to release Saul from his blindness, he wants to release the church from its fear. Years ago in Australia, there was a man who was fed up with his life. Instead of suicide, he determined to buy a corrugated steel tank and live in it. Now he had an air hole He decorated it, he put supplies in it, he even put a cross there so he could pray. 
And he goes in to live a blameless, solitary life with one great hardship. Every morning around 7, somebody began to sh- would shoot, shoot the tank. And the bullets would rip through the walls of the tank. And he learned to lie on his belly on the floor of that tank so he wouldn't die. And yet the bullets would bounce around and many times they would create wounds. Not only that, it would put holes in the tank and the wind would come in and the rain. And So every day he'd go about patching the holes and cursing the unknown marksman. He appealed to the police. The police wouldn't do anything. There's nothing he could do to stop this unknown assailant. But slowly he began to find a positive aspect to those holes. He'd often look out the holes before he patched them and he'd see people walking by, sometimes lovers holding hands, sometimes kids flying kites. Finally, one day his tank fell apart due to rust. And as he walked out, he had little regret until he noticed a man with a rifle. And he said to him, I suppose you're going to kill me now. But before you do, I have a question. Why have you persecuted me? Why do you hate me so much? Why are you such an enemy to me? I've never done you any harm. The man laid down his rifle and smiled at him and said, I'm not your enemy. And then he held out his hands and held out his feet. And he saw the wounds. And he said, those wounds shone like the sun. Now think of Saul on the way to Damascus. For months he's been living in a tank. He's been pursuing his own prejudice. And outside his tank, Jesus has been firing bullets at him. He didn't know him. He didn't want to know him. He wanted him to go away, but he wouldn't. And then finally the day came when his tank began to crumble all around him and Jesus stands in front of him and he shows him his hands and his feet and they shine like the sun. And fourth, notice the distinction. Look at verses 18 and 19. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. Now think of this. For three days, he's been cloistered in darkness, just like Jonah, just like Lazarus. For three days, he's been alone, helpless and blind. He's totally impoverished. He's as poor as a man can be. So what does Jesus do at that point? He sends him a man who bears his signature. He sends him a man who's been the brunt of the persecution that Saul's dished out. 
He sends him a man who's at the top of Saul's hit list. He sends him a man who is as fearful and as prejudiced as Saul has ever been. And what does that man do? He touches him. He heals him. He speaks to him. And he says, Saul, the one who has healed you is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You say, could Jesus have done it himself? You bet he could. But what does he do? He uses those who bear his signature. On the way to Damascus, Saul thought of the church as its enemy. Once he's in Damascus and the scales fall off, he realizes the church isn't his enemy, the church is his friend. In fact, Saul's conversion is the product of Ananias and other believers doing justice and loving kindness. Someone has said in all of the Bible, there's no more touching scene than Ananias coming to Saul, this murderer, laying his hands on him and making him his friend. And look what happens. Luke says, for some days Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. Can you believe that? I mean, talk about Luke being understated. And for some days, Saul hung out with the disciples. And what did they do? They fed him, they baptized him, and they loved him. Ladies and gentlemen, Saul's conversion begins on the road. It is executed in the context of those bearing the signature of Jesus. You know, a couple of weeks ago, a woman came to me and said, you know, I never had a Damascus Road experience. I grew up in the church. I heard the gospel all the time. I mean, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience where God chose me. I chose Him. To which Paul would say, don't flatter yourself. There's only one who can take the scales off your eyes. In my case... He did it after decades of religion and three days of blindness. Your case, it might have been weeks, it might have been months, it might have been years. But if the scales have come off and you know him as your Lord, he did it. How did he do it? He does it the same way he did it for Saul. His justice, his kindness flows through his people. And his will is done. You know the problem with my uncle? He's hung up on Paul. He says he's just a man. And he's right. But what my uncle now misses is the fact that behind Paul, in Paul, through Paul, all around Paul, 
is the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ who is God. It's not Paul's signature that we have in this book. It's the signature of Jesus. And he's still writing his signature on our hearts. Think about that. Amen.